0: Today we are excited to start a, a three-week series uh, called "A Glance Across the Room," and it has everything to do with the tendency that we all have—we all have it—to compare ourselves with other people. So I'm going to have Pastor Steve come up, come on up, and he's going to start us off. And may we be blessed as we hear God's word.
1: Thank you, Eric. I'm really excited about our group life and get out there and sign up and pick up one of those new, uh, great brochures to tell information about what's going on here at Friends and I uh, appreciate that. You know, I, uh, if you've been around here for very long, you know that this is my really second career. Uh, I, uh, in my first 30 plus years after college, was spent volunteering and then a little bit of part-time in the church, being worship leader, worship director, and really, as Sheila said, my second job, full-time but unpaid, and so I I did that, but I really uh, supported our family through my professional career, and for most of that career, I was with a firm that practiced what we called an open compensation system. What that meant was every partner knew what every other partner made. In fact, it was always coming up at the end of the year. Um, The partners, and there were about somewhere around 30 of us, would get a spreadsheet that would have the calculation of the compensation of each of the 30 partners. Um, Everything was was by, by calculation. Everything was by a formula that had already been adopted and approved. And so it wasn't like... I personally needed that to know because I had my own spreadsheet. (laughs) You know, I knew during the year how many billable hours I had. I knew what my collections were. I knew what percentage of standard I had brought in. I knew the other things that went into the formula. The only thing we didn't know was the last line on the formula was your share of the the business's profit or loss for the year. And so that would get added, hopefully added, or maybe subtracted and, and reduce your pay for the year. So, you know, when this came out, you really didn't need to see it to know your formula. But the first thing you would do is glance at the 29 or 30 other formulas that were there, right? You know, I, I didn't need to... Compare myself, and I don't think most people did, to the partners that have been around for a while. You know, they had had bigger books, they had more equity, which got a part of the formula and, and all of that. And so it was it was not that. But you, my eyes would go to that peer group. Did I do as well as Phil this year? <laughs> did I do as well as Chris or Joe or Dave? And as I did that, I know they were doing that to me, right? And so this competition and this, this do I measure up and, and begin to value yourself but how do I compare to other people, especially how do I compare to my peers? Um, pastor or teacher, author, popular Christian author, Kenneth Boa, he, he says this. He says it's only natural to shape our self-image by the attitudes and opinions of our parents, our peer groups, and our society. It's only natural. It's only natural. We all do that. In fact, some psychologists say that the desire to compare ourselves to others is a drive. And it's a drive almost as powerful as hunger and thirst. <laughs> that's, that's why this is universal. This this need we have to compare ourselves. To others. That's why we're spending three weeks on this topic, and because we are all in its clutches. I like really, I really like what Pastor Andy Stanley has to say. He says, he really brings it home when he says this: we all live, all of us live in the land of Ur. We all live in the land of Ur. That is, as we glance around the room, we see people who are richer, skinnier, Smarter, taller, prettier, happier, hipper, and for those who are single marrieder. married <laughs> We know society values certain things, don't we? Society values uh, physical attractiveness and, and, and the popularity that comes with that. Uh, one of my favorite songs out of that great musical, Wicked, is Popular, <laughs> you know. And and Elzeba, is that her name, I think? She she says it's tough, it's tough to be popular when you're green. You know? Yeah, it's tough to be popular when you're green, when you don't measure up, when you're different than other people. Popular. Society values intelligence, the power and the position that it can bring. And we measure ourselves against, are we intelligent enough? Are we, are we intelligent than, more intelligent than the other person? And, of course, society values money and the stuff that it can bring us and the, and the goods. And, and, and we look and say, okay, how do I measure up? But we, if, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we see that this even seeps into the church a little bit, this living in the land of Ur, Take a look around you this morning. Just take a look at the people around you. Yeah. You know, you're probably going to find somebody who's a little better (laughs) than you at some things. There are better prayers. There are better givers. There are better leaders. There are better teachers. There are better singers. (laughs) There are better players. There are better greeters, there are better ushers. We can go on and on and just say, there are some people who are just better Christianers than I am. <laughs> and it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Now get this, comparisons can be informative. They can be informative, but they almost are almost always discouraging. Comparisons can be informative, but they end up almost always being discouraging but we do it, and it's nothing new. In fact, way back in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, we see a group of people who got in trouble because they compared themselves to others with some disastrous results. The people of Israel had been delivered from the promised land. God had miraculous, you remember, how did Moses cross the Red Sea? God took them straight through the sea. God provided food. God provided water. God provided everything they need. And now he brings them up to the brink, to the edge of the promised land. And we read in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, this. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving the Israelites. For each, from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Now, interestingly enough, this sounds like God's idea. It might not have been God's original idea. If you read the first chapter of Deuteronomy, we see this same scenario. But it's the people who request the leader. In fact, Moses said, let's just go conquer. And the people said, eh, maybe we better check it out first. So this seems to be God saying, okay, if you're going to check it out, here's what you need to do. You need to take one leader, one from each tribe, and so he would have taken 12 leaders. He's brought them up to this land, and it's, it's the right place because this is the promised land. It's the right time because back in, in, in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but your people are going to live in a foreign land, a strange land for 400 years. And after they live in that strange land for 400 years, they're going to come out and this is going to be theirs. Guess what? It was 400 years later. The time was right. The place was right. And so Moses sends them out at the direction of God after he picked the 12 spies. We see in verse 17, Moses did what he was told. It says, When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on to the hill country. See, that the la- see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak. Few or many? What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was a season of the first ripe grapes. It's like you're moving into a new community and you know someone that's been there. And you start asking questions like, you know, what are the schools like? How's the crime rate? How are the streets? Do they got potholes in them? (laughs) How are the neighborhoods? How are the golf courses? How are the parks? Are there any good churches? You know what? Those type of questions we ask. Moses is saying, go and and search this out and, and, and check it out and come back. And even then adds, and while you're at it, bring back some of that fruit. And then parenthetically, it was the season for the first ripe grapes. And so they do. In fact, 40 days later, they come back. 40 days later, 500-mile trip around the land of the Promised Land. Verse 26 begins. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them, to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. When they went, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. They showed him the fruit. Verse 23 that we kind of skipped over cuz we can't don't have time to read it all. It says that one cluster of grapes was so big that they had to have two men put it on a pole and carry it between themselves. That's how big that the grapes were. That's a hunk of grapes, I would say. Yeah. Here's the fruit. It's wonderful. It says they brought pomegranates and figs back too. They said it flows with milk, which probably means the herds are all over the place. It's, the land is, is plush. The herds are there. And, and with honey, which might not have been bee honey as we know it. Very likely was the syrup of the dates. Just that it was so plentiful. There's so much here. It's so good. And, and everything is sounding perfect. Until we read the first, ver- first word of the next verse. You know that word? But. <laughs> but. Some of, your, some of your Bibles may say however, some of them may say yet. But you know it's not good, right? we see a, a change in tone in the spies and what they report. We read on. The people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. ah, it's populated. <laughs> and it's populated not just by anybody, but by these big, strong men. Anak was, his, the descendants of Anak were thought to be giants, or more properly, gigantic, big folks. The walls were fortified. It's it's, it's, it's strong. And actually, as, as archaeologists have found out, this is exactly true. When they found these cities and they found these, they've unearthed them, and they've seen these massive walls that have surrounded these cities. And they would have looked at them and said, wow, they're, they're, they're gigantic, they're impenetrable. But as you read through, as we read through chapter 13 and into 14, we, we notice that this is the, not the unanimous report, but the majority report right? It's the majority report because this is 10 out of 12 spies that are saying this. There are two spies who have a minority report. In fact, one of those spies is Caleb, and he speaks up and says, hey, don't listen to them. Let's go do it. We can do it. But he was quickly drowned out. In fact, in verse 31, after Caleb gives his plea, the majority speak again, and they say this in verse 31, we can't attack those people. Do you get that? We can't Attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. A couple things. We can't do it. We can't do it. But did you notice here? They, they moved, I think, from the land of Israel, the land of Canaanite. They moved into the land of Ur. <laughs> they are what? Stronger than we are. And the comparisons begin. They're stronger than we are. We can't do it. Says they gave a bad report. Bad report is a lot like gossip. It spreads quickly and it poisons. And the bad report spread through that community. We can't do it because we don't measure up. We fall short. There was some truth to what they said. These people were big. They were well fortified. This was not an easy task. If they were thinking they were just going to move in and they were, the other folks are going to move out, <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. There was truth to it. But the conclusions they drew from it were devastating. The conclusions they drew that we can't do it because they are stronger than us. Caused hardship and devastation to people. That wasn't the end of the bad report. They go on and say this: the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. They're giants. They're gigantic. And then they they says it devours. The land devours. Now. Now they're starting to really lay it on thick, aren't they? (laughs) This land is going to devour. It's going to eat us up. (laughs) And then the moment of truth. The moment of truth that reveals their insecurities. They say this. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. They have just pitched their tents and set up camp in the land of ur <laughs> comparing themselves to others not measuring up they are taller they are bigger they are stronger they are mighty ur they saw themselves and they saw their enemy here's a tip Here's a tip. It's really, really difficult at times to see God when you're staring at each other. When we're staring at others, it can be very difficult to see God and see Him work. Instead of looking up, (laughs) they were looking out. Instead of looking up, they were looking out. And all they could see was the obstacles. All they could see was the challenges. And they were frightened and they were scared. While comparisons can be informative, they are almost always discouraging. And they were discouraged. And so they did what we tend to do. First of all, they exaggerated. I mean, grasshoppers, really? (laughs) Don't we tend to exaggerate sometimes when we're trying to get a point across? We're trying to make a point that we're, we're worthless, we're terrible, or, or, this, or that somebody else views us in, in this way. And I know I have done, I've exaggerated things like that probably 600 million times. You got that, okay. <laughs> but we exaggerate. We say, we look at the problem, and we just, it just grows and grows and grows in our mind, right? I can't do anything about it. The other thing they did is there was this assumption, and we looked the same to them. How do they know? I wonder, did anybody come up and say, hey, grasshopper? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But we, we assume what other people are thinking. And so not only are we saying we're, we're worthless, we're, we're, we can't do it, we, we don't measure up. And now we're saying, and everybody else thinks the same thing. That guy doesn't measure up. He's not pulling his weight. His chargeable hours aren't high enough. He didn't didn't do enough getting new clients this year. And we start playing this game in our minds. I don't measure up. And the problem here, though, another problem here is that the people were listening. The people were listening. The spies were not just saying they were too small. They were too puny. They were too weak. They were saying, and you are too Their voices were loud, and their voices were influential. You're puny. You're not worth anything. You can't do it. You're not worth it. And that message was coming from 10 cowardly leaders. But they had the attention of the people. We can't do it. They're too strong. Nowhere in here do we see any mention that we serve a big God. Nowhere do we hear anything like, with God, all things are possible. It's just we can't. We don't measure up. I'm worthless. I'm puny. I'm small. I'm short. I can't run fast enough. I can't even run fast enough to get away from them. we got to stay here. The question, who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? Who is telling you you can't? Who is telling you that, that you don't measure up? The process of determining self-worth for many, for many of us, for many people, is based on this, was what we call social comparison. Comparing our own accomplishments, our own looks, our talents, our athletic prowess, our grades, our compensation, our popularity, our family, our position to others and their, their compensation, their grades, their family, their popularity. We have to have this ranking system. Seems like we humans need it, you know. Everywhere I look, the top 10 quarterbacks of all time, the top 10, you know, we, we rank Everybody. I think God, you know, I was reading this week that, uh, you know, this depends on how old you think the earth is and stuff like that, but estimates that there have been 108 billion people that have ever lived. Okay, so somewhere around that. Let's just say there's 100 billion people. You know, I'm just thinking, okay, God, do I rank in at least the top half? <laughs> you know, where's your ranking of me, God? Or, you know, I mean, I mean, man, certainly I can make a little better than that. But, you know, there's no, nowhere the Bible says God ranks his people God is no respecter of persons. God does not show partiality. Social comparison. There's some traps to that. The first thing, the first trap is that um, social comparison, what we see in others many times is an illusion, right? What you see on Facebook is a sliver of their lives. It may look like everything is hunky-dory, but if you knew what happened 10 minutes before that picture was taken, <laughs> you might say, okay, no more comparisons, right? We see so small a portion of people, and yet we make comparisons of our lives compared to their lives. Another thing is, face it, life isn't fair. Not all of us have been born with the same gifts, the same talents. Not, not all of us have been say, born to the same advantages. You say, wow, that sounds kind well, of harsh. Well, I tell you what tell that to somebody who's struggling in Haiti to raise a family and to serve God or someone who's living in Cuba which we had somebody in our house just this this fall telling us about life in Cuba war torn countries like Syria we just haven't all been given the same lot in life and so to compare what we have with others is useless And finally, comparisons turns friends and allies into rivals. It turns friends and allies into rivals. That's what would happen in my firm. You know, a new client would call in, and there'd be you know fifteen partners jump on that, trying to be the first one to call them back, (laughs) because we were rivals because we wanted our compensation to be higher than the other person's. We see that in schools. In fact, recently there's been a, not just any, not really all colleges, but especially highly competitive colleges, an incredible increase in suicide rates. And it's because, when many reasons go into suicide, but one reason is because in that comparison game that they're playing, they, I don't measure up. they used to being top, number one, and all of a sudden now, I'm not number one, struggling. Reminded of what the Apostle Paul says, to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, he says this, oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say we're as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. (laughs) But they are only comparing themselves with each other, themselves, using themselves as a standard of measurement. How ignorant. Paul here in defending his ministry is saying, I'm not even going to bother. I'm not even going to bother playing the comparison game. I'm not even going to bother trying to compare myself with other people who compare themselves to other people. He said, that's stupid. (laughs) Research shows that people who regularly compare themselves to others often experience negative feelings of deep deep dissatisfaction, guilt, and remorse, and engage in destructive behaviors like lying and disordered eating. Just because we're comparing ourselves to others. And so rather than social comparison, some, some say there's, a, there's another term we should use or another comparison we should make, and it's called a temporal comparison. And, and a temporal comparison is defined as this, comparing yourselves today to where we were in the past and where we want to be in the future. This is a psychologist saying, quit comparing yourself to others and start comparing yourself in a way that where you think about, where have I been in the past? And where am I going in the future? I think this may be a, a thought and a, 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 a springboard for Christians to think about where we are and where we're going. Galatians 6.4, Paul says this, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you don't need to, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else if you do the job well, if you're making progress, if you're making best use of your gifts, don't worry about what other people are doing. Where was I? Where do I want to be? I think as Christians, we look at this and we say, "Where, where was I? And we begin, first of all, And combating this this desire and this need to compare ourselves. We begin with a heart of appreciation. Appreciation for what God has done for us. Appreciation for I am not where I was. I think God likes to hear that. In fact, just a few chapters before this in Numbers, God says, you know, I want you to remember where you were. And he says, it's been one year since the Passover. We're going to do a celebration. We're going to do a remembrance so that you can remember where you were and you can celebrate that you're no longer there. Deuteronomy 7, when Moses is speaking to the people, and he, he says in verse 17 he says you may you may say to yourselves these nations are stronger than we are how can we drive them out he says this but do not be afraid of them remember well that the lord your god what the lord your god did to pharaoh and to egypt remember where you were remember what god did and appreciate it don't compare yourself appreciate what god has done for you appreciate i was once lost in sin Appreciate I was once addicted and, and, and away, from, away from God and appreciate that he has brought me and he has put his arms around me. Appreciate that God has saved me. Appreciate his mercy and his grace. And, finally, and second, then after that, be content. Find contentment. Comfortable in our own skin, realizing that not, we don't have to compare ourselves with anybody else. Just because I don't sing as well as Seth does, doesn't mean I can't sing my heart out. <laughs> I just don't do it, you know when other people are around, right? <laughs> Be content with what God has given you. What do I have? The Apostle Paul, beaten in prison, stoned, shipwrecked, yet in prison, he wrote that he was content no matter what his circumstances. Don't try to be someone you're not. You know, do you remember the story of David and Goliath? <laughs> David, getting ready to fight. And he said, David, you need some protection. And so they got him all of Saul's armor gear and, and put it on and said, you need to be like this. This is how you do this. And, and David comes out and he's a little guy, boy and he's, guy And he's walking out and he's says, "I can't do. I can't be someone I'm not." God's protection is enough for me. I'm content in attacking and going, going with this big giant of a guy with just my little slingshot and stones. I'll be fine. Be comfortable with what God has given us. I can't be who I'm not. And finally, anticipation looking forward to what god is doing for me for for you for, for with your unique skills with your unique talents maybe not maybe you're not like somebody else maybe you're not as talented as, as the person sitting next to you but what can god do for me where do i want to be but the better maybe better question is where does god want us to be you know where god wanted the israelite people to be in the promised land that was clear your future is in the promised land. You need to measure yourself by what God wants you to do and where God wants you to be. So, the question here again, I asked it before is who do you listen to? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the crowd, to the naysayers, to those who say you don't measure up? Whose voice? It's tickling your ears. Because there's another voice. There's the voice who speaks to us in the quiet moments. The voice who who speaks to us as we pour into his word. And you know what God says about you? He doesn't say you're worthless. He doesn't say you're too short. (laughs) He doesn't say, you know, you're in my my bottom 20% of the 100 billion of all time. (laughs) That's not what God says about you. First John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. And if we're children, Romans 8, 17 says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if we indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory we could go on and on and on and on with scriptures about who god says you are but it should be enough to know i'm a child of the king i'm a child of god and god is not measuring me against you and he's not measuring you against the person sitting next to you or curse the person against the room he's just saying to you okay are you are you grateful are you grateful for where you have been and where i've brought you Do you have that heart of appreciation? Are you content with what the gifts that I've given you? Are you out there searching for more? And are you ready to go where we need to go, where you need to go? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Caleb knew that. That report that Caleb gave in the midst of all these negative reports was this, in verse 31, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we certainly can do it. We can do it. When we get our eyes off of others, when we get out of the land of Ur and we start looking up, Say, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Lord, thank you for what you've given me and I will, I will develop those gifts. I will, I will work on those gifts. I will, I will be the best Christianer I can be. <laughs> but I won't try to be somebody else. And then I'm going to go do what you want me to do. Don't let the crowds, don't let the crowds tell you what to do. Don't let the crowds define who you are. I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. Who do you listen to? This morning, driving in, it's not a very long drive from my house to here. Especially on a Sunday morning early, there's no traffic, and and all the lights are green, so I can usually get here in just a few minutes. And so, but I turned it on, and, and, and as soon as I turned on my radio, the song we were about to sing came on. And it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an exciting song. It's a song that I just love the words that tells us we are a child of the king. And afterwards, uh, I j- just was pulling in the driveway. I had to sit here and listen to it for a while because the singer um, Colton Dixon was being interviewed. And, you know, Colton, he was on um, American Idol. And, and they were talking about that. And he was just giving a little bit of the story. And he says, you know, um, I got on the show and at first it was wonderful until we found out and discovered the blogs that people would write to tear us down. And he said, as the performers, we all found it at the same time. <laughs> and they were hideous things, they were ugly things. They were trying to say, you can't do it, you're not worth it. And he says, yeah, and he says sometimes you just have to realize which voices to listen to. There's a lot of voices, and they're coming straight from the same source. From Satan himself saying, you don't measure up. But there's another voice that says, I am a child of the king. You are a child of the king. You are joint heirs with Christ. And we realize that when we get our eyes off of others. We quit looking out and we look up. We look up. Would you look up with me this morning? This song just lifts my heart. Let's stand and let's close together. Who do you say that I am? I'm a child of the King.
0: Let's sing together. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. The sun sets free, always free indeed. I'm a child of God, God. yes, I am. The last He has ransom, His grace While I was a slave to Saint Jesus died. Yes, he does.
1: child of the God, if you've surrendered your life to Him, if you said Lord, I'm, I'm sorry and I want you to be my Savior. If you haven't done that, I invite you to come down and talk with Pastor Eric and I later or if you just want to come down and pray too as we close this morning, you're welcome to do that. But God doesn't want us to walk around thinking that we uh, we're not good enough. That we don't measure up. We're His child. You know, there's an old song I used to sing at the cross. In the verse would go, Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote a sacred head for such a worm as I? <laughs> I remember sitting in a, in a Wednesday night prayer meeting once and one of the dear old ladies of the church said, I am not a worm. <laughs> I thought, wow, lady, you're kind of uh, arrogant there. That's when I thought that the words in the songs were equal to Scripture, you know. But then I realized that's not quite the truth. In fact, if you pick up your hymnal there, it's the words have been changed to a sinner such as I. <laughs> we are not a worm. We're a child of the King, right? Amen? Amen. Go this week and live as a child of the King. Don't compare yourselves to others. Compare yourself to where you want to be and what God has done for you. And think about that. Focus on that and serve Him. Go in peace, you're dismissed.